0: Thank you, Nathan, for that introduction. I think I have a daughter-in-law and some grandchildren in this room somewhere, although I don't see them. Uh, But that's that's not unusual for me. I can't see it all. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ through a ministry known as Chosen People Ministries. It's uh, one of the oldest—oh, by the way, this is my favorite sermon— I get to do it sitting down. One of the oldest and largest Jewish missions agencies in the world. We were founded in 1894 by Rabbi Leopold Kohn when he came to know the Lord as his Messiah and his Savior. So I have 51 minutes and 17 seconds to teach you 3,000 years of Bible history. <laughs> but I need you to help me to do something first, if you would. Would everybody pay attention just a minute? I want you to slide up to the edge of your chair. Just ease up to the edge of your chair. Now hold your hands up in the air. Hold your hands up in the air and say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay, now sit back. And they're going to say to you Montgomery all week, we heard you had a Jew at church preaching what did he say? And you say, I don't know, but he had me on the edge of my seat shouting hallelujah. <laughs> That's all you have to remember. So, in my, in my 50 minutes and 27 seconds now uh, that I've got left, I'm going to try to teach you a lot of history. I'm going to try to teach you some culture, some language, and some Bible. The Bible that you have is a Jewish book. It's written by Jews, to Jews, for Jews, and about Jews. Its central theme is the redemption of the Jewish people through a Jewish Messiah. And by the grace of God, you, the wild olive branch, have been grafted into the natural tree. So uh, I want you to know that rumbling is from the sound system, has nothing to do with my body part. <laughs> You've been grafted into the natural tree. And what I want to do this morning is to try to show you the Bible through Jewish eyes. I, I, I want to show you the Passover as a tool of teaching you the Bible from its Jewish perspective. Um, we believe uh, very strongly that in order for you to see and understand the Bible, it really must be taught to you through Jewish eyes so that you can have the historical, the cultural, the linguistic Uh, the traditional aspects that the Bible came from. I'm going to use a tool this morning that we call Messiah in the Passover. Uh, The biblical holy days that you find in Leviticus chapter 23 are probably one of the greatest tools of sharing the Messiah with people, Jew or Gentile, that we have in the scriptures. Uh, These holy days that you have outlined for you in Leviticus 23 are not Jewish. Uh, I know that you you call them the Jewish holidays, and I understand why you call them the Jewish holidays, but they're not Jewish. They're Bible, and they are intended for all Bible believers for all time. Now, I have two books out on a resource table at, near the front door. I didn't come to sell books. I really... Don't like to do a lot of sales, but these two books are tools that represent the teaching that I'm going to do for you this morning. Uh, This book was written in Israel. I co-authored this book with one of my teachers. Her name is Susan Marcus, and we've done over 70 tours to Israel together, teaching the Bible on location. And this is an introductory tool to the biblical holy days. It has some beautiful, except for the pictures of me, it has some beautiful pictures that it has in the book. It has recipes, it has outlines, including the Passover that I'm going to share with you this morning. And then we have another little book called the Haggadah. The Haggadah literally means the telling of the story, the telling of the way. And uh, there's a great history to this book, which I won't take the time this morning to go through with you. But if you'll get this book after you see this presentation, it will make a great deal of sense to you and will show you how easy it is to share the truth of God and the Messiah that he provided. Now, we're going to refer to it as messianic. That's the term that you use as the word Christian. Uh, I don't think there are seatbelts on your chairs. Uh, So I'm going to tell you some things that might be a little startling for you. And so just hold on. Please don't throw anything at me. Just listen to the whole presentation. The word Christian was intended to be and originally was a very derogatory term. It was a term of mockery. Um, And uh, it doesn't mean that today, but we use the word messianic from the term Messiah. And so what we'll be sharing with you is called Messiah in the Passover. Now, Passover is an at-home celebration. In fact, much of the worship of biblical Judaism is done at home. It's an at-home type of ministry. Uh, Now, You can answer me. I don't mean for these questions to be rhetorical. Who is the head of the home? Well, I have some volunteers, but nobody's really speaking up. Who's the head of the home? No. No, see, that's one of your Christian misconceptions. The father's the head of the family. The woman is the head of the home. And when... You allow the woman to be in her God-called place, in her God-called position. We refer to that as shalom in the home, peace in the home. (laughs) Mother is the head of the house. The father is the head of the family and all under God. The Passover is an at-home celebration. So mother and the children prepare the home for the celebration. Passover never changes. Passover is always the same time every year, 14 Nisan, year in and year out. Let me just make this statement, and I'll come back when we do a Bible conference together and explain it. You cannot study your Bible from the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar was invented as a correction of the Julian calendar and was put in place by Pope Gregory specifically for the purpose of keeping you from studying your Bible. So you have to study the Bible, you have to apply the things of the Bible from the biblical calendar, and on the biblical calendar, Passover is always 14 Nisan, it never changes year in and year out. People are always asking me, what day is the, when, when is the Passover this year? And I always give them the same smart aleck remark Passover is the same time as it was last year. It never changes. The reason you're confused is because the Pope put Easter on the first Sunday after the first full moon of the vernal equinox. And he confuses you because they, the Catholic Church, no offense, just history, were trying to separate anything Jewish from anything Christian. So Passover is always in the spring of the year. In the spring of the year, the women, the first thing they do is clean the home. Now, the home is already clean, but it's a ceremonial cleansing, removing leaven, which makes bread, from the home. And then, after they do this ceremonial cleansing, Papa, uh, it used to be with a candle, now they use a flashlight, and go through the house with the children, and they'll take pieces of leavened bread and scoop them onto a wooden spoon, put them in a container, usually a little paper bag, and take them outside the house and destroy them. Isn't it significant that the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us as the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world, was taken outside the city on the wood and destroyed? So we begin the Passover with a picture of the Passover lamb. The next thing the women do is cook. A Passover is not called the Passover feast for nothing. Passover is a tremendous food banquet that takes place in the middle of the service. And then the next thing the women do is they illuminate the celebration. There is this what we're going through this morning is actually known as a liturgy The things that I'm sharing with you are not found in the scriptures They're not found in Matthew Mark Luke John acts Because the writers of those books were Jewish and they were writing to Jews about Jewish things and they had no idea that 2,000 years later all of the Jewishness would be removed from the context of the scriptures so they had no need to put in these details, so I'm sharing these details with you because they've been lost in your culture and your tradition. So our culture and our tradition is this. When there are, men, when there are women present, no men are permitted to light the lights. But now just for the sake of time and for the sake of getting the service done, I'm gonna go ahead and light the lights and say the prayer for you. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has allowed us to reach this holy season. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has allowed us this night to kindle the Passover lights. Why does the woman like the light? Who is the light of the world? How did Jesus come into the world? Only through a woman. So it is the woman who illuminates the Passover table. Therefore, even though they're not mentioned, there is no way that they did the Passover in the upper room without women being there. No way. So after the lights are illuminated, Papa sits down at the Passover table. He extends his hands to his left or right. A basin is placed under his hands, and water is poured over his hands, and a ceremonial hand-washing service. This hand-washing service today is a substitute for the foot-washing service that was done during the time of Jesus. During the time of Jesus, people walked in open sandals on open, dung-filled, filthy streets, and it was the tradition that when guests came into your home that you would have servants with clean, fresh water at the entryway to wash the feet of your guests. Of course, you know How this applies to Jesus in the upper room when no one did that, and Jesus humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, making himself lower and then washing the feet of his gifts. This is the beginning of the coming to the Passover table. Now, I need you to try to focus as best as you can remember to the events that took place in the upper room. They were not at a beautiful table like we have. They were at a very low table called a triclinium. It was in a U-shape, and because of where they were in the triclinium in the conversations, we can have a reasonable idea of the seating order that was in the room. But they were on the floor reclining in cushions. Now we have an unused place setting. This unused place setting is for the prophet Elijah. There are prophets that come heralding the coming of the Messiah, both of his first coming and his second coming. And Elijah is the prophet in Revelation chapter 11 with Moses as one of the two witnesses that herald the coming of the Messiah, Zechariah 14.3. So as a representation of Elijah, we keep this place setting at the table. Of course, we know that Jesus told us that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, if you will accept him, and that we have this place setting there for what we would talk about as the spirit of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, makes straight the way of the Lord. There are many other elements on the Passover table. These are all liturgical elements. Liturgy is my friend. Liturgy reminds me of where I've been, it reminds me of where I'm at, and it reminds me of where I'm going. Liturgy is good. Traditions are good as long as they don't contradict the Word of God. And so nothing I'm going to show you contradicts the Word of God. In fact, it complements the Word of God. So everything in this liturgy is going to be complementary to the Scriptures. Passover itself is gauged by four cups of wine. We have four cups that are used throughout the Passover celebration. Each cup has a different purpose, and each cup has a different name. The first one is called the cup of blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine, the cup of blessing, represents joy. The Hebrew people at the time of Jesus were an agrarian society. They were an agricultural people. And the joy of an agricultural people is the harvest. And they would come together with a grape harvest, mashing the grapes, harvesting the grapes, making the wine for the next year, and it was a time of great Family joy, a time of great community joy. So the fruit of the vine, the cup, represents joy. So they all bless the first cup, and they all take a swallow of the first cup. Oh, Nathan put grape juice up here. (laughs) I thought I was going to get a swallow of wine. Maybe next time. (laughs) Uh, The first cup, the cup of blessing, is actually the beginning of the Passover celebration. There is on this special plate, and this is called a Seder plate. Not cedar, that's wood. Seder means order of service. And no matter how you do your family Passover, there must be six steps in the order of service that you follow through. And the first one is a green leafy vegetable called carpus. Remember, I told you that Passover was always in the spring of the year. Passover in the spring of the year represents new life, new birth, new creation, when the earth reflowers itself. That's why the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 1, teaches us that Passover is the new year, the actual beginning of the year. Exodus, chapter 12, verse 1, this month shall be the beginning of months to you. The term born again is not a phrase that Jimmy Carter invented. The term born again is a phrase of Biblical Judaism. Now, Biblical Judaism is written from the masculine. Now, ladies, don't be offended. That's just how they do it when they write in Hebrew. And they, it's written from the masculine. So, the term born again is explained with the birth of the male child. He's born. And then eight days later, at Brit Milah, or the circumcision, he's born again. Thirteen years later, at the Bar Mitzvah, when he becomes a son of the covenant and can read the scriptures publicly, uh, he's born again. At about the age of 20, when he marries and starts a new family, he's born again. At about the age of 40, when he set aside for the teaching of the scriptures, what the Apostle Paul calls the laying on of hands, the Hebrew word is smilka, uh, he's born again. The only thing left is the Orthodox funeral where he's born again into the world to come, the olab habab. So this famous rabbi in Israel, Nicodemus, at the end of John chapter two, has a conversation with another rabbi, an itinerant rabbi, Rabbi Jesus, and he's asking about being born again. So Rabbi Jesus uses this green, leafy vegetable called the carpus, and he explains about being born again as the earth is born again in the spring of the year. And Nicodemus says to him, understanding the physical aspect, what do you expect me to do, enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Rabbi Jesus said, no, Nicodemus, this is a physical teaching of a spiritual truth. Unless you're born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then there is also on the Seder plate a cup of salt water. This salt water represents the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, as the nation of Israel, as a, 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 an example of being born again, the nation came out of bondage to go into freedom. Uh, It was an example of being born again. I'm not saying that all of the Hebrews and Egyptians that came out of the Exodus were born again. I'm just telling you that it's a picture. And as they came out to show that testimony, to show that picture, they were immersed in water. They were submerged in water. And so the salt water is on the table representing the Red Sea. And Papa, or in this case, Jesus in the upper room, takes that carpus and he dips it into the salt water and he passes it around the table. And one one year when we do the Passover together and we set the tables and we eat the meal, I'll let you know how we eat the carpus and explain to you how restaurants decided to put that on your plate every time you order food as a garnish. It comes from the Passover. But that's another sermon for another Sunday. This is called matzah. Now, in your English Bible, you have the term unleavened bread. Now, let me explain to you, uh, uh, there is no such thing as unleavened bread. If it's bread, it's leaven. If it's not leaven, it's matzah. But I'm going to go ahead and say (laughs) unleavened bread to keep from confusing you in your nearly inspired version and all of the other versions that you have, it's going to say unleavened bread. This is unleavened bread. This represents Jesus. Blessed are you, o Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Where was Jesus born? Be'at lechem, Bethlehem. Be'at house, lechem, bread, the house of bread. He came forth from the earth, that they grow the grain or the barley or the wheat, uh, whichever grain you make the matzah with, it comes forth from the earth. It's a picture, a type of Jesus. It's striped. Do you see the stripes? By his stripes we are healed. You see the piercing? He was pierced for our iniquity. Without sin, striped and pierced. Now, let me explain this is not Jesus. This does not become Jesus. This is a representation of the Messiah, Yeshua, in Hebrew, Jesus. Now, this matzah, unleavened bread, is kept on the Passover table in a special container. This container uh, has three compartments. It's called a unity No one can really, with historical accuracy, teach you why it has three compartments. But we believe that it has three compartments that represent the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Comforter. As you would say in the English, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not the first one, not the Creator. And not the third one, not the comforter, but the second piece of bread called the Redeemer that we use in the Passover celebration. And Jesus would have taken this piece of bread called the Redeemer, and he would have blessed it. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Then the tradition is that you break it in half and you leave half of it on the Seder plate and there are linen garments that are representative of the burial garments. In the apostolic writings, they're called swaddling clothes, swaddling clothes, and they are burial garments that the pregnant woman used to support herself during her pregnancy. In the time of Jesus, there was an approximately 50% mortality rate. Either the mother or the baby would pass away. And therefore, the burial garments had to be kept available. And if the baby lived, if the mother lived, the burial garments would be used to swaddle the baby, to comfort the baby, to wrap the baby, during the first few hours of the birth. These are the burial garments that the mother kept with her throughout her pregnancy, either for her or for the baby. Jesus took this piece of bread, and he put it into the burial garments, and then it's hidden or buried until a closing part of the Passover. The Passover continues then with the reading of this book. This book is called the Haggadah, the telling of the story. The history of this book is that it came forth out of the Babylonian captivity. When the Hebrew people went into the Babylonian Assyrian captivity... They were there for 70 years. They forgot how to worship God. They forgot the holy days. They forgot the Passover. If a child was 10 years old when they went into the captivity, that child is now 80 years old. So you have 80 and 90-year-old people who were the only ones who remembered how to do the Passover. So they wrote it down, In the revival, in Ezra chapter 6, the revival of the biblical holy days in Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's handed down to us generation through generation as the Haggadah, the telling of the story. Now, Papa goes through this story. It's the unfolding story of redemption. If the Holy Spirit of God opens your eyes, you can see that it's Messiah Yeshua or in your vocabulary, Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open your eyes, all it is is a redemption out of Egypt. But the picture of the redemption out of Egypt is a picture of what you must do individually. The Haggadah tells us that whatever God did for the nation of Israel, that you must accept it personally. And so Papa goes through the entire story and talks about how they took the Lamb of God and put it on the doorpost and how God delivered them. By the way, I know we've got a lot of Bible movies floating around, but I want to I wanna tell you when it comes to the story of the Passover, the movie might be good, but the book is better. And when it comes to the story of the Passover, I want you to know there is no death angel. There is no death angel. God said, this night I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will slay all of the firstborn, both man and beast. And the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, uses that same teaching when he said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we go through the complete unfolding drama of redemption called the story of the Passover. Now there's a test. One of the children at the table has to ask four questions. Each question begins with the same sentence. Papa, why is this night different from all other nights of the year? Now, after the four questions are asked, and let me show you the rationale from this, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says you will teach these things diligently to your children. So the book of Deuteronomy means, from the Hebrew word devarim, it means to tell it again. So if it says teach it diligently in the book, that says, tell it again, Papa goes through the whole story again to make sure the children understand. And there are four children that are demonstrated in the Passover. The wicked, the wise, the naive, and the simpleton. Now, I'm not saying that about your children, and don't you categorize your children. I'm saying that's an example that the Passover and the gospel message must be explained so clearly that everyone can understand it. Jesus said we must come to them as a little child, that we can clearly understand the message. So then we come to the second cup. The second cup is the cup of plagues or judgments, And they pray this prayer, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine, and they all drink from the second cup. Papa then takes the green leafy vegetable, the carpus, and he dips it into the wine, and he puts a drop of the wine on this piece of matzah for each one of the plagues. The plague of frogs, the plague of uh, water and blood, the plague of darkness, the plague of light. He goes through the plagues that were brought against the false gods and goddesses of the Egyptian empire. This was a confrontation between Ra, the sun god, Pharaoh, and the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we know him. And these plagues came against the false gods of the Egyptian empire. And each time they sing, uh, each time they uh, demonstrate one of the plagues, they sing a little chorus called Dahinu. And it it literally means that's enough, that should have been enough, That." should have been sufficient. But church, the Haggadah teaches us that we must do personally what God did for the nation of Israel. And nothing you can do is ever dahenu. Nothing you can do is ever enough until you take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorposts of your heart. So you personally accept the Jewish Messiah, who for the Jewish nation taught us the story of redemption that was so important that we went through it twice in the Haggadah to make sure everyone could understand, even the simplest child, nothing you can ever do is dahinu, until you put away you trying to do it and do it God's way by accepting the Messiah that he provided. Then there's another hand-washing ceremony, and the Passover finishes. Now, you're not that lucky. I'm not going to finish this early. <laughs> Passover comes to an end. During the Passover meal, uh, there's a great time of fellowship and a great time of rejoicing. And, but since we're not having the meal this morning, I'm going to share with you a couple of things that are on the Passover table that are never used. One is an egg. Now, many people today don't include the egg in the Passover. Many people today include the egg in the Passover. The reason we don't is because nobody knows where it came from. We believe, many of us who are Messianic, that is, that we believe in Jesus the Messiah, and we take all of this personally. We believe that the egg is a reminder, not from the Egyptian captivity, but from the Babylonian captivity. Another explanation is that the egg represents something that is produced once a day. And it reminds us of when there was a standing temple in Jerusalem, that we had the single daily sacrifice that was offered once a day. We don't know. We also have a bone, an unbroken bone on the Passover table. This represents a bone of him shall not be broken. This represents the Passover lamb that was used in Egypt. This represents the introduction of John the Immerser when he introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This bone is called the zikaron, the remembrance, the tool of remembrance. So as it's on the Passover table, it stands silently as a tool of remembrance for the Passover lamb. After the meal is finished, and I hope one day that I could take the time and have the opportunity to tell you the first time at Perry Hill Road Baptist Church across from the Veterans Hospital in Montgomery, the first time that I ever saw or participated in a communion service. I hope one day I'll have the opportunity to tell you that story. But after the meal, you come back to the Passover table. And this is where, in the teaching in the upper room, Jesus established what you know of as Communion. The word communion comes from the word communicate. And we take it from the teaching of Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he said to examine yourself before God. Communicate with God. and Make sure that your fellowship with God, which would assume that you have a relationship with God, that your fellowship with God is correct. After the meal, they took the cup. That tells us exactly where they were in the Passover celebration when Jesus gave this explanation. He took this piece of unleavened bread. Now, this piece of unleavened bread has a Greek name. It's the only Greek word in the entire Passover celebration. This piece of bread is called the Afikum. And we don't know exactly what that word means, as best as we can ascertain from the etymology of the word, it means, after this, nothing else. So unbelievers refer to this as a dessert, but this is much more than a dessert. Listen to the words, as I uh, paraphrase what Jesus said in the upper room, now, let me, let me get the picture for you. In the triclinium, Peter is here, and John is here, Jesus is here, and Judas is here. Now, every two people have a common bowl that they dip into. On the table is a very bitter herb, a very bitter spice called moror. It's freshly ground horseradish. At the time of Jesus, it was mixed with a wine that was allowed to sour. It's very hot, very distasteful. It's very bitter. So you had one bowl for for John and Peter, and you had one bowl for Jesus and Judas coming around the table. Remember, Hebrew goes from right to left. Your English goes from left to right. We have to go this way. So here's a common bowl. Jesus, having served the bitter and the sweet, now takes out this piece of bread, this officomen, from the earth, striped, pierced, broken, buried, and now resurrected. And Jesus said this at the table This represents my body. By the way, let me say this. This can only be done in the context of the picture that Jesus is teaching. This can only be done with matzah. You can't do this with leavened bread. Watch. He said, this represents my body, which is about to be crushed for you. As often as you do this, I want you to do it in remembrance of what I'm about to do for you. And then he passed the unleavened bread, the matzah, to everyone at the table, and they ate it. He then takes the third cup, called the cup of redemption, and he blessed it. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And he said, this cup represents my blood that is about to be shed for you. As often as you do this, I want you to do it in what I'm about, a remembrance of what I'm about to do for you. And they drank from the third cup. In the history of the Passover, in everything that we have, from the time of Moses to today, everyone at the table had their own cup. Therefore, the legend of a Holy Grail That they all drank from is only a legend. That's the same way, if you know your Bible and understand your Bible and understand the history, culture, and tradition, and the language that your Bible came from, that's why the Shroud of Turin is a complete hoax, because that's not the way that they were buried. So you see, the geography, the history, the culture of these things will affect your theology. There is a fourth cup to the Passover. After they drank the third cup, after they ate this piece of bread, uh, unleavened bread, after they drank this cup, there's a fourth cup. It's called the cup of Hillel, or the cup of praise. There is a songbook, a praise and worship songbook, in your Bible. It's called the Psalms. In the Hebrew, we call it a Psalter, and all of them are intended to be sung uh, they, they have a particular set of psalms that you sing at the conclusion of the Passover. They are Psalm 116 through 118. And at the conclusion of the Passover, uh, as you uh, prepare to drink the fourth cup, the cup of praise, you sing Psalm 118. Now, this is what Jesus sang at the end of the Passover. It was not some beautiful spring morning in Alabama uh, on the beach or at the lake. It wasn't some beautiful spring morning when you saw your first tomato crop beginning to bloom. This was hours before the Gethsemane experience and just hours before the most horrible execution that man had ever invented the crucifixion. Jesus sang, I shall not die but live. Yes, the Lord hath chastened me severely, but he has not given me over unto death. This is a day the Lord hath made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Then he said, I'll not drink of this cup again with you until I do it in my father's kingdom. And they all drank from the fourth cup. Now we know that they understood what was about to happen. How do we know? Because John is grieving. John is weeping. He's probably sobbing. And I have to use here a bit of sanctified imagination. But I see Jesus putting his hand on John's shoulder and comforting John and saying to John, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In the Father's house are many bridal chambers, and, John, I'm simply going to prepare one for you, and I will come again. And with that, they left the Passover table, and they uh, went on a journey across the Temple Mount, out the Eastern Gate, and over to the Garden of Gethsemane. We, at our modern Passover table, send a child to the door. Uh, Originally, the child was sent to look for the prophet Elijah for this unseen guest. Today, we send a child to the door not to look for Elijah, but we as believers send a child to the door not to look for John the Immerser, but we send a child to the door to look for the unseen guest at every believer's table, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're still here, so he's not there. When the child comes back to the traditional Passover table, they'll say, perhaps next year in Jerusalem. And church, when our child comes to the door in the believing home as we celebrate the Passover, we say, perhaps next year, in the new Jerusalem. Christ Community Church, uh, this is probably the most powerful presentation of the gospel that we have in the biblical holy day." And I wish I could tell you that every time we show this to unbelievers, that they would immediately accept the Lord. But I can't do that. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you this from 42 years of experience. When we show this presentation to unbelievers, they can never celebrate the Passover again and not see Jesus. Because from the cleaning of the house to the sending of the child to the door, He is in every moment of the Passover, which is why we call it Messiah in the Passover. Church, he is in all of the biblical holy days. He's in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When you read these things, when you study these things, these are not Jewish holidays. These are biblical holy days. And whether you're reading about the Passover or the creation account in the book of Genesis, As you read the scripture, all of the scriptures, you need to open your eyes and look for Jesus because he's there from the very beginning to the very end. As the Ethiopian eunuch, after coming from the temple in Jerusalem, going down the road to Jericho and on the way back to Africa, as he's confronted by Philip the Evangelist, Philip said to him as he read Isaiah 53, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, no, unless some man explain it to me, I don't understand. Church, your responsibility, your fulfillment of the Great Commission, your hands and feet and heart and mind that have the scriptures, your responsibility is to explain it to those people who don't understand it. Do you understand what you read? No, how can I? Some man explained it to me, and he preached unto him Jesus. Church, the Democrats are not going to save us. The Republicans are not going to save us. The Libertarians are not going to free you. What we need to be concentrating on these days is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And who we need to be presenting is King Jesus, because he's still on the throne, and we just need to show it to the people, and we need to show it to the people through the scriptures. This is Messiah in the Passover, and I wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart for allowing me the freedom and the opportunity and the liberty to come to Christ Community Church and to share this message with you. Let me close in a word of prayer. Then I'm going to turn the service back over to Pastor Keith and close it as he uh, sees fit. While he's doing that, I'm going to make my way to the resource table in the lobby and will be there to answer any questions that you might have. If you want to come and taste the unleavened bread, you feel free or come up and look at any of the things on the table. You feel free to do that. Thank you, Christ Community Church, for your ministry to me, to my family, and to the King. God bless you, Pastor Keith.